0: Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. This morning, Romans chapter 4. Consider the almighty judge of the universe who hears my case and weighs the evidence which is clearly stacked against me because of my sin. And the expectation is that he, the sovereign judge, will declare me guilty as charged. And yet, for some reason... An advocate steps into the courtroom and says, I will take the full measure of this man's sentence. I will bear his penalty in full. And the judge agrees. And the sentence is carried out on this advocate. The advocate is treated as the guilty party and I am treated as the not guilty party. I am free. How can this be? How can the righteous God declare a wicked sinner like me not guilty without impugning his own character? And the answer in chapter 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago is that he can be both just and the justifier of the wicked when he delivers his son over as the perfect satisfaction of his wrath and as a payment for my sins that deserved an eternal punishment. Friends, that is the substitution that took place for all who believe that Jesus is the Savior. But how does this happen? How do we appropriate this to our account? How do we have uh, this righteousness credited to our account? How do we have our sin credited to Christ's account? So that He takes the penalty for our sin. How can we have righteousness credited to our account like Abraham did? And this passage further answers that question in chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. So let me read that for us. This is the Word of God. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. How is it that God can declare a guilty sinner as not guilty? The basis of our justification is the promise of God which is fulfilled by faith. The basis of our justification is not our faith, but the basis of our justification is the promise of God and it is carried out or the means by which we receive our justification is by faith. So, first in verses 13 to 17 we see the promise of God is the basis for our justification. The promise of God is the basis for our justification. Do you remember when we talked about justification, particularly in chapter 3, we saw that justification is a one-sided, unbalanced transaction where God credits to our account righteousness and forgiveness and we credit nothing to God's account except for our own sin. And that means that justification does not and cannot come on the basis of my works. Justification can only come, that is the right standing before God can only come on the basis of grace alone. And faith comes into the picture in how we receive it. It's the means by which I use the example of the garden hose. It's not the spigot that is the source of the water supply. It's simply the garden hose by which we receive it. And if that's the case, if we are all justified by grace alone and not by our works, then we have nothing nothing to boast in. Because we had no part in earning our salvation, did we? Well, here in verses 13 to 25, we'll see that the basis of our justification is the promise of God. And this promise of God cannot be fulfilled by what we do. Again, it's not by our works. And therefore, these... These, uh, this proof actually helps to show us that we can be assured of our salvation. The promise here in verses 13 to 17 given to Abraham and his descendants was not through the law, but through faith. So let's break this section down into two easier to manage statements. First, the promise of God given to Abraham was not through the law, verses 14 and 15. The promise of God will not be fulfilled by obeying the law. Verses 14 and 15. In order to prove that the promise of God is not fulfilled by obeying the law, that is, if I keep doing enough, then eventually the promise of God will have to be appropriated to me. Paul is disproving the opposite in verse 14. Notice what he says there. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So if a person kept the law and they actually became an inheritor, an heir of the promise of God, then we wouldn't even need faith, right? If, if we could actually somehow attain the promise of God through our works, we wouldn't need faith, would we? Faith would be unnecessary because we could do it on our own. But notice the second problem in verse 14. The promise is nullified. That is, because no one can obtain the promise by means of obeying the law, right? So let's say we we came upon the premise that if I obey the law, that's the only way that the promise can come. Well, then we won't need faith. And, in fact, we don't need the promise because none of us can fully obey the law, can we? That's what he's been setting up in chapters 1 to 3. We can't obey the law fully. We're all sinners. There is none righteous, not even one of us. And so we can't do it. And so in that case, the promise is Kind of silly. Why would God put out a promise if we had to obey the law to get to it? Because no one can obey the law fully. That's what we've already seen. And so in that case, the promise is worthless. Paul uses verse 15 to further drive home this point that the promise can't be fulfilled by keeping the law. He says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there's also no violation. One of the promises of the law is to bring about wrath. And why is that? It's because, second part of the verse, where there is no law, there's no violation. The Jews clearly had the law. It was given to them. It was one of the great features of the Jewish people, the, the people of Israel. They, they had the law of God. And yet, they clearly violated it. And therefore, they have a more serious offense than the Gentiles even. Because now, they have received the law and they have disobeyed it. And so, as a result, they have even in a greater way, the wrath of God on them, don't they? It's it's like us who have received the truth of the Scripture and if we squander it, we will experience the wrath of God greater than someone who never heard. You see, the Jews, nor anyone who keeps the law, cannot inherit the promise of Abraham by keeping the law because no one can keep the law. The law cannot bring about justification. It can only show us our sin. It's it's uh, it is wrong for us to violate a law when we don't know about it. But it's even worse when we violate a, a law that we do know about. Isn't that true? It'd be one thing for me to hunt on a private land I don't hunt, but but for you, let's say, to hunt on a private land and not know about it, you could get in serious trouble for that. But what if you knew about it and you climbed the fence in order to get on that land, right? There would be clear evidence stacked against you. You knew what you were not supposed to do. You knew that there was no trespassing, and you trespassed. One is a sort of ignorance and maybe foolishness. The other is willful defiance. I know this is your land, but I'm going to hunt here anyway. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verses 14 to 15. He's saying the Jews have no excuse. Where there is no law, there's no violation. But here, they do have the law. And and in their case, it's a willful violation and it brings about the wrath of God. And he's saying all that in order to prove that, that, listen, obeying the law is not going to bring about the promises of God. Obeying the law is not going to bring about our justification. Because if inheritance can be a means of obedience to the law, if we could receive that inheritance by obeying the law, then faith would be unnecessary. But what we know from the Scriptures is that faith is necessary because none of us can keep that law. And so, um, so first, the promise of God will not be fulfilled by obeying the law. Second, he, he breaks this down here in verses 16 and 17 by showing the promise of God is fulfilled by grace through faith. So we could say that the source of the fulfillment of God's promise is God's grace. And it happens to be received by by faith. So, if we're trying to reach out for this inheritance, which in our case we're saying the promises of God or justification or right standing before God, if we're trying to reach for it by working towards it, by keeping the law, we know we can't get there. Right? We 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 bring about wrath upon ourselves. We make faith void and we actually nullify the promise because we can't reach it. And so there's only one other option. The only other way that we can receive this promise of God fulfilled in us, the only other way that we can receive justification, this inheritance, is as a gift. It has to come by grace. That's what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Now, what we'd expect Paul to say here is for this reason it is by grace. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he's saying it is by faith. But notice how he connects it to grace in the very next line. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. Receiving the inheritance by grace and receiving the inheritance by faith are not opposing statements. Like we either we, we either receive it by grace, or we receive it by faith. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying it. You receive it by grace through faith, not by obeying the law. That's the that's the contrast. But but receiving it by grace and be receiving it by faith are the are, are basically synonymous statements. That is to be justified by faith and to be justified by grace are virtually the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that your faith triggered God's grace. In fact, it's the other way around. God's grace actually triggered your faith. We'll talk more about that at the end. But the promise of God is fulfilled by grace, not by works. And faith, as we saw last time, is not a work. If faith were a work, then God would have to pay us for our salvation, right? He'd have to give something to us like a wage, like you receive from your boss. But we're not receiving it as a wage. It's a gift. And because our inheritance doesn't come by means of works, but by means of faith, then the promise is more than ju- for just the Jews. That's what the end of verse 16 is talking about. Says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews who receive the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, Who's the father of all, as it is written, the father of many nations? Have I made you? So, it's not just for the Jews. This is important, okay? Because you might think, well, okay, so, so if if uh, we can't obey the law in order to get that promise from God, how are we going to get this promise from God that was really for the Jews uh, initially? And the answer is, we can receive the promise from God the same way that the the people of the Jews received the promise from God through faith. And that's the way we follow in Abraham's footsteps. Not by his ethnicity are we accepted by God, but rather by his his response in faith. He goes on in verse 17 to say, "In the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist." Paul here is saying that the future rule of God's kingdom belongs to those who believe. And their belief, their faith, is dependent solely on God's power and choice. And the reason that that can come about is because God creates that within them. You might ask, well, how can we know? I mean, how how can we have that faith? How can a person have faith? How can they actually receive this inheritance? And the answer is that God has to do the work. That's what it's talking about. God is the one who gives life to the dead. He calls into being that which did not exist. God created the world in this way. He called something out of nothing. And that's precisely what happens at regeneration. That God breathes into your lifeless spiritual person spiritual life. He breathes into you life. And so we need God to do a unilateral work on us to bring about regeneration so that we can respond in faith and so that faith results in justification. Faith is the means by which we receive that. If our inheritance of the world came through our obedience to the law, we would fail. If we received that inheritance through obeying the law, we would fail and that inheritance would be worthless. It would be like God is giving us a promise that's never going to come to pass. It would be similar to me promising you. I would give you a million dollars if you could make it to Florida and back before the end of this service. Now, I know our services are long sometimes, but you couldn't make it back to Florida and back and be able to cash in on that promise. I mean, I could put it all in writing and both of us could sign it, but that piece of paper, that promise is worthless because it's impossible to keep, isn't it? You see, God didn't do that with the inheritance guaranteed to Abraham and his seed. He didn't say, here's the promise. You will have righteousness credited to your account if you obey the law. It's like, well, we can't. We're sinners. That's not what God did. And and the reason He didn't do that is because that's not the means by which we receive that inheritance. It's a gift. We receive it by grace. And the means by which we receive it is through faith. In other words, the reason that we know that the promise of our salvation will come to pass is because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our obedience. Your initial and final salvation do not depend on On your obedience, your religion, your worship, or even your perseverance. Your salvation does not depend on you. If it did, it would be over here, wouldn't it? Your salvation depends solely on God's grace. That's what we need. We need God's grace. We need to be able to receive that as a gift. So, the promise of God is the basis for our justification. Second main point, verses 18-22, to the promise of God fulfilled through faith is illustrated in Abraham. So, we're expecting Abraham to be a man of works, but no, he's not. He's a man of faith. And that's the illustration that we see. The promise of God fulfilled through faith is illustrated in our father Abraham. So, if you want to see what the promise of God fulfilled through faith looks like, promise of God not over here with obeying the law. promise of God comes through grace through uh, by faith. What does that look like? Well, look at the example of Abraham. Abraham was a man of great power, but not because of his works. Abraham was a great man of great power because of his faith in God's promise. First, we see in verse 18 that Abraham believed in what seemed impossible. In hope against hope, that's the idea. It's basically impossible... in in an impossible situation, humanly speaking, he believed. Same idea. It's the same idea as having faith. He had faith. This is Abraham. And the reason that God fulfilled His promise to Abraham by faith and not by works is so that God's promise could be fulfilled in all of us who believe. Abraham was not the father of the Jews so that the Gentiles would ultimately be excluded, but rather Abraham was the father of the Jews so that ultimately the Gentiles could be included. That's what that's what the end of the verse says. So shall your descendants be. Or or the promise in Genesis. It says, uh, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, you are the father of the Jews so that all the Gentiles can come to me. And the, the way that we come to God is the same way that Abraham came to God and is by faith, by what he believed. In verses 19-22, to we see that Abraham's faith was strengthened even as the promise was delayed. Abraham's faith was strengthened even as the promise was delayed. Now, we'd expect that as it gets harder, that faith is going to get weaker. We'll talk more about that next week. How to do this when it looks like when it looks like things are getting more difficult, we get to chapter 5. And there we'll see that the trials actually don't weaken genuine faith, but they actually strengthen our faith. And, And as you have gone through trials yourself, you know that to be true, and we'll talk about that more next week. And that's what happens here. The trials for Abraham get more and more difficult. God makes the promise, and then God delays. And He delays. And then He reminds him about the promise and He delays some more. And He delays. And we're not talking just a couple months. We're not talking about a couple years. We're talking about decades. And God finally follows through on the promise that He made to Abraham for a son. And the way that we can learn from Abraham is that in all of this, Abraham did not waver. Verse 19, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body And then verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. This is what genuine faith does. It actually grows in time of trial. It gets stronger even when the odds are stacked against you. Against all odds. All the tangible evidence says otherwise. All the scientific research says there is no way Sarah is going to have a son. There's no way. With Abraham at 100 years old and Sarah at 90 years old, scientific tests prove that it will not happen. So he's got all the odds stacked against him. And yet, what does the text say? He didn't waver. Now, this is generally speaking. We remember he laughed in Genesis 18. But... But generally speaking, he did not waver. As he got closer to, or we could say farther away from the initial promise, he did not waver. He grew stronger in his faith to the point where verse 21 actually says that he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. This happens with time and with God's grace, that as he builds in us this faith, it grows stronger and stronger sometimes he uses trials in order to make that faith stronger Paul concludes his discussion that he began in verse 3 which is his point was that faith is credited as righteousness to those who stop trusting in themselves and believe in the bare promises of God and he concludes it here in verse uh, at the end here of chapter 4 third third thing that we see here this morning is that the promise of God fulfilled through faith is available to all. So first, the promise of God is the basis of our justification. Second, the promise of God fulfilled through faith is illustrated in Abraham. And then third, the promise of God fulfilled through faith is available to all. Verses 23 to 25. Well, that's nice that Abraham was justified by faith. That's nice that Abraham grew strong in his faith after God credited that righteousness to him. But what does that mean for us? And that's what these last three verses are here for. God's crediting righteousness to Paul on the basis of grace and doing it through Abraham's faith also serves as the same way that we will have righteousness credited to our account. It's the same way that we will receive justification. It is by grace through Faith, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. All who follow Abraham in believing God's promises will be justified. They will have righteousness credited to their account. And then notice verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justifications. Talking about Christ here. We need Christ. Just like Abraham needed Christ as his future promised Redeemer, so we need Christ. And the death of Christ was necessary for our justification, but also, notice at the end of the verses, resurrection was as well. He was delivered over, he was crucified for our transgressions, but raised because of our justification. So it's not only his death that we need for our justification, but we also need his resurrection because... The resurrection was the resounding yes from God that said Christ's sacrifice is enough to pay for the sin of that wicked, vile person. We needed Christ to raise from the dead. Otherwise, our faith would be in vain. So let me give you three principles and one point of application as we close. Number one, principle number one, an inheritance is not earned. An inheritance is not earned. God here is promising for you and all who believe an inheritance. But inheritance, by its very definition, cannot be earned, can it? If it were earned, it would not be an inheritance. It would be a wage. And so, whatever you receive from God is all of God's grace it's all a result of God's goodness. It's an inheritance. It's a gift. We don't we're not entitled to it in any way. God gives it to us on the basis of his grace. So number 1, an inheritance is not earned. Number principle number 2. Dead people can't rescue themselves. Dead people can't rescue themselves. When you got saved you are not out in the ocean of spiritual danger, heading for the deadly rocks of God's wrath, flailing around, calling out, help, someone help, throw me a line and I'll, and, and we'll work together and, and, we'll, and I'll pull myself in. You pull me in, I'll pull myself in. We'll work together and I'll receive salvation. That's not what happened when you came to Christ. You were in an ocean of spiritual danger, yes, Heading for the rocks of God's wrath, yes. But you weren't flailing around asking for help. You were floating there dead. Unable to save yourself. Spiritually speaking, Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 8 says that that not only were you far from God, but you didn't even want to come to Him. You had no desire to turn to Him. And so when you came to Christ, you did not grab the rope that was thrown to you by God and hold on as He pulled you in. No, that's not how it happened at all. Spiritually speaking, you were floating lifelessly in the water with no hope of restoration on your own power. You didn't have one ounce of energy to restore yourself. And you didn't even have the thought or the desire to do so. You were spiritually dead and the only hope that you had was for God to do something a one-sided action a unilateral transaction where He would take your lifeless spiritual body and breathe life into you you needed to become a new creation so that your old things would pass away and behold all the new things would come you needed God to create you spiritually. And what that tells us, the fact that dead people can't rescue themselves tells us that all of our rescue was 0% attributed to our ability and our desire. We couldn't do it. And 100% it was attributed to God and His mercy. All of it was God. You were saved on the basis of what God did. 100%. Dead people can't rescue themselves. Number three, you can't breathe without first having life. You can't breathe without first having life. Now you might be thinking, how is it that you have been saying that I am not contributing anything to my salvation? I mean, didn't you see here in the passage in Romans 4 that Abraham believed, you know, with all hope against hope when all the odds were stacked against him? And didn't God look at that faith and say, yes, now here is righteousness? And I would say, yes, Abraham did believe. And yes, God did respond to Abraham's belief with justification. But here's the key. Abraham couldn't breathe out in faith until he first had been imparted life. That's what's happening here. Faith is actually a response to what God has already do did. God breathes into Abraham life. He breathes out faith. God grants justification. That's what's happening, and that's what happens when you come to Christ as well. You receive justification because you had faith, but that faith cannot be uh, displayed or expressed until God first gives you life. Consider the example that I use often of Lazarus who was completely lifeless. And Jesus gave him a command, Lazarus, come forth. But at what point did Lazarus respond with the obedience of faith? It's a stupid question, right? Because dead people can't do anything. And the same thing is true in our salvation. You couldn't even express faith Because you were spiritually dead. You needed first to have life imparted to you. You see, you needed God to grant you spiritual life before you could respond in faith. And so what I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture this morning is that regeneration comes before faith and repentance. Regeneration comes first. That is, God imparts life to you before you can express faith. then when god sees that faith he credits it to you as righteousness but all of it is a gift because it wasn't you working the faith is not a work it's simply a response to what god has already done it's a gift god's saying here i'm giving this to you now receive it by faith and you receive it because he's already given you the life to be able to make that response in faith so if you think if you want to think of these in a biblical and theological order, it would go like this. Life, that comes first. That's the regeneration part. God imparting life to those who are spiritually dead. Life, then our response, repentance and faith, that's the breathing out that Lazarus did by obeying Christ's command to come forth. And then justification. See, we didn't earn it. It's all a gift because we had to have the life first. Life, regeneration, repentance and faith, and then justification. You can't breathe without first having life. So, let me finish with the application and then we'll pray. The application is is this. Trust in God against all odds. Trust in God against all odds. This is what Abraham did. Listen to John Calvin on this. He says, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. Aren't they? God promises immortality and yet we're surrounded by mortality, death, corruption. God says, you're going to be immortal and we're looking around saying, no one's immortal. So it it kind of works against the promises of God, doesn't it? Secondly, God declares that He counts us just, righteous. And yet we look at ourselves, right? What do we see? We see filthy sinners even as Christians, we see ourselves and our filthy sin and we say, how can you count us as righteous, God? Have you looked at me lately? This is I'm kind of paraphrasing for John Calvin here. He goes on to say, he testifies, that is, God testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. That is, that he's, he, his wrath is satisfied. And yet, all these outward judgments around us threaten God's wrath. Well... You know, I, I committed this sin and now all these outward judgments that are inside of this world in which I live are, are coming down on me and rightfully so. And yet God says, my wrath is satisfied on you, but, but why am I experiencing wrath? And so Calvin concludes, he says, what then is to be done? And here's what we should do. We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. We need to do what Abraham did. When everything in this world speaks against all these promises that God's holding out for us, he's saying, yes, you are just, you are righteous in my eyes. Yes, I will give you immortality. Yes, you are out from underneath my wrath. And everything else in the world is saying, no, that's not true. God's a liar. None of those things can be possible. We need you in those times more than ever. With our eyes closed to all those troubles that are going on around us and that are keeping us from believing God fully, we need to step forward towards God and believe that He is true. And so, friend, Christian, in whom are you trusting for your salvation? Is it the work of Jesus plus, you know, one percent of what I do? Faith is not a work. It is not a work. Faith doesn't or your salvation does not come because of your faith. It's simply the means by which you receive it. The Holy Spirit has reminded us today that our salvation is 100% an inheritance, a gift. It's all of grace. And 0% of it can be attributed to our works. And you can be confident that you are God's and He is yours, not because of what you did or how worthy you are to be saved, or what you are doing now, or what you will do in the future. You can be confident that you are God's and God is yours on the basis of God's promise. Is God true to His promise? Is God's promise good enough to stand on its own? That if you come to Him believing that Jesus is enough, then salvation will be yours. That's all you need. All salvation. All of our salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. Pray. oh father we pray that you would come near to us who feel far away lord help us to to sense your presence and your nearness your care help us to know with certainty that your promises are true and as we come to know you more and as we go through trials may you strengthen our faith may you strengthen our focus because we like peter uh had that, that single-minded focus on Jesus when he first stepped out into the water. But then as the troubles of life started to rise up all around him, he, he forgot. And he took his eyes off of Christ and we, Lord, are like him in so many ways. And we need your grace even to pull us out of that. Because we, apart from looking to you, are are on sinking uh, sinking kind of ground sinking sand and, and we need we need you to pull us up and hold us close to you keep our eyes fixed on you and Lord you know how how difficult that is for us in a world that is opposed to you and is going against you and actually speaking lies about you and your promises and, and sadly Lord it's, it's even within our own hearts our, our own flesh fails us it speaks against you and encourages us to turn away from You. But we need Your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need Your Holy Spirit to win because we know that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. So help us, Lord, we pray, to be confident in what You will do on the basis of what You have done through Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection and our confidence in that. We pray in Jesus' name.